Well, good morning. It's it's nice to say that. We don't we don't get to say good morning at Grace. <laughs> we sleep in. No. <laughs> well, speaking of which, I was up in the middle of the night again. Kita, my 22-month-old, has been struggling with staying in her big girl bed all night. But that's not why I was up. Quinn, my three-and-a-half-year-old, has begun a new habit of waking late and asking for toast. But that's not why I was up. My five-year-old Jake seems to sense the higher stress level in our home right now due to my husband's soon deployment, and he keeps slipping out of bed and into our room late at night to sleep on the floor next to his dad. But that's not why I was up. I'd actually set an alarm for 1.55 a.m. on Friday morning, April 29th. And I'm hoping that I'm not the only diehard in the room and that maybe some of you were up too. Um, The rest of you cheated and DVR'd the royal wedding and watched it later. But for me, as the mother of three preschoolers, uh, finding five random hours in the middle of the day to watch said DVR'd wedding uh, would just never happen. So instead, I got up and watched it live. So, was I the only one? Did anyone else get up? Hey! <laughs> Yay! Be proud! Um, <laughs> um, and uh, getting up middle of the night to watch Kate Middleton be- become Princess Kate and marry Prince William in, in Westminster Abbey. And of, of those of you who raised your hand, uh, how many of you also woke up your daughters um, even if they're only 22 months old, uh, to sit and watch it with you because you were afraid one day when they turned six and were into all things princess that they would be really mad and say, you let me sleep through it. So we got up. We didn't have the tea and scones and cream that we were supposed to have. We had bananas and popcorn, but um, she watched it anyway. And if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about because you live under a rock somewhere... Um, the eldest son of Prince Charles and the late Princess Diana, Prince William. He's the second in line to be the King of England. Um, he was married two weeks ago. I'm lucky enough to be old enough to have also gotten up one other time in the middle of the night with my mother to watch Diana become Princess Diana in what would be the wedding I would compare all future weddings to. Kate and William were fun to watch. It was fun to make fun of the hats, to marvel at the colors and the textures and the trees inside, to smile as they said their vows, to wonder if they were nervous, and to wish them well. But as most of us know, most of us that aren't living under rocks, um, There was a pretty big story lurking beneath this stunning and romantic event. Because the future king of England was marrying a commoner. 
an especially common commoner. And though I lived in the UK for three years, I <laughs> don't even begin to understand all the ins and outs of the royal line and royalty. Uh, but I do know that there have been quite a few marriages in the last several centuries where untitled women um, have married into the royal line, but there has been no one as common as Kate to marry a future king since 1660 when Anne Hyde was smuggled in at midnight to marry the man who would become James II. The other untitled women, including uh, the late Princess Diana, all had royal, la- royal lines really completely surrounding them um, in very close proximity to themselves. The closest Kate comes to being of any royal descent is a very, very distant relation to King Edward III, who lived in the 1300s. In other words, she's about as royal as me. Um, Kate does, however, come from some very good, solid, hardworking stock. And at the risk of sounding like the begats in the first chapter of Matthew, um, I'd like to tell you a little about her family tree. Her great-great-grandfather, John Harrison, was a coal miner in the north of England. But his closest connection to the throne was that the mine that he worked in was owned by the Bowes-Leon family, who were soon to give their daughter Elizabeth in marriage to the royal family. Only one of John's 11 children, Thomas Harrison, ever managed to escape their small village, and the coal mines. Thomas was apprenticed to his maternal grandfather, who was a carpenter, and he traveled around on bicycle from town to town practicing his trade. In one of those villages, he met and eventually married a girl named Elizabeth, and they began to talk of a new life down south, closer to London. One day in the 1930s, They bought one-way tickets south and never looked back. They had one child, Dorothy, who grew up to marry Ron Goldsmith, who was an engineer and lorry driver, truck driver to us Americans, um, and he eventually became a builder. They had a daughter, Carol, who was born in 1955. And when she grew up, she married a trainee pilot she had met while she was an air stewardess with British Airways. Soon, Carol and her husband, Michael, opened an online children's party business that has successfully taken them from middle class to upper class, allowing them to send their daughter, Kate, to very prestigious schools, including St. Andrews, where she would one day meet Prince William. Pretty impressive family. Worked hard pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, nose to the grindstone, and all that. Sounds like the perfect American dream. Uh, Except, of course, English dream. Nonetheless, on the day that the announcement was made that Prince William was finally engaged to Kate Middleton, all the papers could talk about was that she was a commoner. No matter that she will be the first queen with a college education, no matter that she carries herself with poise and character and confidence, no matter that her parents are millionaires, 
As far as some of the highbrows were concerned, she was a poor choice simply because she was not a royal. Have you ever been told that you weren't good enough or treated like you just didn't quite measure up? Have you ever been looked down on because you didn't have the right credentials? Well, then you have something in common with Kate Middleton and with the church at Colossa. In the second chapter of Colossians, we read more about this. And if you want to turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2, that's where we'll be spending our time today. We'll jump around to different verses. So if you've got it open, you'll be in the right place. So in the second chapter of Colossians, we learn that the young church there is being picked on a bit. There are those within the church who are judging other believers on their behavior, what they are eating or drinking or touching or celebrating. They are being judged for not following a list of do's and don'ts. The New, Inter- the New International Version uses the word disqualified. It says they're being disqualified because they don't worship angels or pursue seeing visions. Physical self-denial and asceticism are being encouraged by these heretics within the church. The believers were being told that they must attain secret knowledge in order to be saved. Basically, they were being told they weren't good enough. They weren't doing it right. And I don't know about you, but I have felt this way myself (laughs) a time or two. Not being good enough is a feeling that is very present in our world today. We're surrounded by messages telling us that we're not pretty enough, smart enough, rich enough, thin enough, etc. Billions of dollars are spent each year by companies trying to tell us what we need to be good enough. If we just buy this or take this or smell like this, then we'll be enough. And it happens even in our friendships and in our families and in our jobs and in our schools. There always seems to be someone who's just a little bit gooder (laughs) than we are. Someone who's more talented, more organized, more fashionable, more creative, smarter, tidier, a better parent, a better cook, or just a better friend. Well, thank goodness for church. That's the one place you can always go where you always feel like you're good enough. Or maybe not. I remember like yesterday, the night before I was baptized, at the age of 10, my mom found me upstairs crying. And when she asked why, I told her that I just wasn't sure how long I could be perfect. Even though I was raised in a loving church, by loving Christian parents, with loving Sabbath school teachers, etc., I had still somehow gotten the message that the goal of this Christian life was perfection, was being good enough. And after I was washed clean in baptism, I believed that the way to maintain that perfect state was through perfect behavior. 
The church at Colossians was certainly not the last church to have struggled with this issue. And the reason is simple. Hard work and striving for perfection makes sense to us. Read with me at the end of Colossians 2. We'll start with verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Did you notice the line? Such, Such regulations or rules indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Right. It appears to be right. It makes sense to us. In human thinking, if you want to move up in the world, you have to put in the time. You have to jump through the hoops. You have to keep the rules. Climb the ladder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you go back to verse 8, again, still in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Right again, human tradition, the basic principles of this world, tell us without any question that the only way to a better life is hard backbreaking work. I mean, which makes more sense to us? The hardworking family history of Kate Middleton or the fairy tale ending where she just happens to meet a prince who just happens to be the prince who whisks her away on his shiny white Rolls Royce. Which makes more sense to us? That we'll ultimately receive our life's reward or punishment based on the things that we've done? Or that as verse 13 and 14 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. How does that make any sense? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. As humans, the hard work scenario works for us. It makes sense. And honestly, I feel a little better knowing that it's actually human nature to seek out the works angle of things. I appreciate understanding that it's a pretty natural response to a very unnatural concept of grace. But in this situation, human nature and human human understanding is just wrong. One of the messages of Colossians is that the legalism, the rules, the do's and don'ts, the self-control that some were trying to mix in with Christianity just doesn't work. Paul says Christ and his grace is all we need. Paul basically says that though the coal miner turned millionaire story of Kate Middleton's family is nice, 
that as hard as they worked, pulling themselves up, they could never, ever be rich enough to be royal. Royalty by works is as much a failure as salvation by works. No matter how hard her ancestors worked, toiled, slaved, they still couldn't get her all the way to royalty. Two weeks ago, Kate Middleton became princess because of one thing. He loved her. And when he asked her to be his, she said yes. Each of us sitting here today was born a commoner. And I don't care how many generations you can trace your Adventist or Christian heritage. We were all still commoners at birth. We were unworthy to live anywhere near the throne. And no matter how loving or kind or generous we were, no matter how many hours we spent cutting out felts for cradle roll, or how many casseroles we baked for potluck, or how many thousands of dollars we gave in tithe, We were and still are unworthy. No matter how high we stack the rocks of our good behavior, it doesn't even begin to reach the throne room of heaven. We cannot reach up to God by following rules or by practicing religion. The good news is God reached down to us. And he asks for our response to him. Kate was just some girl until the day she met a prince. And two weeks ago, she took a long walk down a beautiful tree-lined aisle to become his. Her friends and family and a zillion people she'd never met, like me, saw her transformation. To witness the moment where a commoner would, with two simple words, become royalty. The choir sang, the trumpets trumpeted, the vows were read, and she said, I do. And at that moment, everything for her changed. Neither Kate, nor her mother Carol, nor her grandmother Dorothy, nor her great-grandfather Thomas, or her great-great-grandfather John could ever have in their wildest dreams imagined what would happen to their family in that moment. The years in the shadows and the grime of the mines, the brutal short lives, the wailing of the pit sirens, all that was gone forever. In their place, church bells, ecstatic crowds, and the promise of a future crown. It will probably be decades before Princess Kate becomes queen, before the crown sits on her head. And during that time, she will change and become more and more like the royal bride she is. But it all began at the moment she said, I do. And so it is with each of us. There's a moment in each of our lives where everything changes where we go from being commoner to royalty, a member of the king's family. And it happens for only one reason, because he loves us. He asks us to be his, to walk this life with our hand in his. 
He asks us to stop listening to all who would tell us we are unworthy, not good enough. He asks that we see ourselves through his eyes as his bride, and he asks us to say yes. And when we do, he clothes us in the most beautiful attire, not quite the same way as the stunning Grace Kelly-esque wedding gown that Kate wore or the dapper red colonel's uniform that Prince William wore, but it's even better. The message describes it like this in Colossians 3, beginning with verse 10. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider, outsider, civilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it.